man. How many are thankful for water? Have you been drinking your water lately? Have y'all been hydrating yourselves? It's, it's going to get hot this summer. You need to drink a lot of water. That's, there's no scripture on it. Well, actually, there's a lot of scripture on water. He's the living water. We need water. <laughs> All right, if you got a Bible, go to 3 John 1, verse 2. 3 John 1, verse 2. And I shared a word with our staff this week that I just felt like I was supposed to share on Wednesday night. And I see y'all as just strong leaders in the church. Um, even if it's your first time tonight, you came on a night where there's people here that are going deeper, diving in. And so I wanted to expound on what I shared with our staff specifically for this service. I want to title this message, Heart Check. Heart Check. My question for you tonight, if you're taking notes, is how is your heart? How's your heart doing? Um, there are every day, literally, hospitals are filled around the world with people who are having heart issues, heart trouble, heart attacks, uh, heart failure, uh, and just clogged arteries to the heart, so many problems with the heart uh, that people are dealing with physically. But I believe every physical problem also has a spiritual connection. We see that in scripture. Um, and this is really what John, the pastor, the beloved, the disciple is talking about here in verse two, third John chapter one. There's only one chapter in third John. He says, dear friends, how many of y'all are friends tonight? Come on, dear friends, I pray that you may enjoy good health. How many of y'all wanna have a good health? Like, yeah, you wanna stay healthy, you wanna stay strong. And he says, I pray that you would enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. One version says, um, I pray that you would prosper as your soul prospers, that your physical being would prosper as your inside being is prospering. And that is the key to living a good life on the outside is living a good life on the inside. The key to experiencing a prosperous life on the outside is making sure that you're prospering on the inside, that your soul and your heart is getting healthier, stronger, healed, whole, um, set free from any toxicity so that you don't have a heart attack so that you don't lose what God wants to do in and through your life. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. Help us, God, to look in our hearts, Lord, that you would just illuminate areas that we need to work on, grow in, surrender, repent, um, and just allow you to remove anything, God, that's holding us back from experiencing that full life that you have for us. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Thank you so much. Can we give our worship team a big hand? Come on. They do a great job every week. Well, right now in our world, there's a lot of people struggling with mental issues, mental health issues, emotional health issues. Um, as we've seen on the news, a lot of the, the shootings that have happened have come from really troubled souls, people that are just deranged in their thoughts, and every outside action starts as an inside thought or feeling. Uh, everything we see on the outside starts on the inside. Jesus taught a lot about this, and I'm going to give you a couple scriptures just kind of um, just hitting them fast. Matthew 15, verse 18 says, the things that come out of the mouth, 
come from the heart. These are the things that defile them. Everything flows from the heart. He goes on to say, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander, lying. It all comes from within. Mark 7, verse 21 says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart. Everybody say heart check. It's out of the heart that evil thoughts come, sexual morality, theft, murder. He goes on to say this, in every gospel, Jesus addresses the heart. He addresses issues of the heart, things that are stirring in people's hearts. Proverbs 4, verse 23, the wisest man in the world uh, during his time in the Bible, they said this was the wisest man, King Solomon. He said, guard your heart above all else, more than anything else, because the source of your life flows from your heart. Everything you do, everything you do flows from the heart. So when you're, when you're being a good, honest person, when you're living a really good life, it's because your heart is in a really good place. When you're practicing really good um, just actions with your life, you're living discipline, you're living on purpose, you're walking in forgiveness, you're choosing to be kind, you're being a generous person, you're walking in love, you're, you're, you're where you need to be, you're doing what you need to be doing, it's all because your heart's in a good place. When you start doing things that are out of character, where you go, man, I don't know why I did that. I don't know how that happened. Where did that come from? Why did I cuss like that? Why did I do that thing? And why did I go off on that person? Why did I lose my temper? It started in here. It started in the heart. It all comes from the heart, Jesus says. And Proverbs says, this is why we've got to keep a guard up around our hearts. I remember um, reading an article by a musician named John Mayer a famous musician, songwriter, singer. And he said this, he said, you know, I've made so much money off my music that I've been able to purchase the most secure alarm system um, that, that a celebrity could purchase. He said, I have a, a high gate that encircles my property. He said, not just me, but down the street is Jamie Foxx. And down the street from him is Robert Downey Jr. And he said, these guys have really tall gates, 12 to 15 feet high. Behind that gate, there's dogs, there's a security guard. Then once you get to the house, there's an alarm system, very complex, and, and it requires codes. And then we've got locks on all the doors. He says, I got everything to keep me safe. He said, and then I sit down at my computer and I open up YouTube and I open up iTunes and I start reading reviews about my songs. And all of these comments climb over the fence, bypass the security system, come right through those locked doors and go right into my heart and suddenly I am battling suicidal thoughts and depression that I can't keep an alarm system from protecting. I can't pay for a big enough fence to guard what's coming deep into my heart. And he said, I went through the most dark season of my life when I started reading comments about what people thought about John Mayer. And he said, you can't pay for enough alarm systems to guard your heart. And yet it's the most important part of our life to guard. It's the most important part of our life to guard because, and this is a secular person talking. As Christians, we know the ultimate uh, uh, place that the enemy wants to get into is our heart. Jesus said, what, like, don't be afraid of someone who can kill your body. Be more concerned with, with who's coming after your soul. Who's coming after your heart? Because once, once he can get into your heart, it doesn't matter. He, if he has a hold of your heart, he'll let you live. And he'll use your heart to do all kinds of evil 
things. When the enemy gets in your mind and starts setting up embankments in your thoughts and your emotions, your heart and your feelings, then he's, he's in no hurry to take your life because now he can start using you to destroy an entire family, to destroy an entire community, to pass on generational curses to your kids and your grandkids. This is why our heart is so important to guard it. I've seen generational curses of anger, generational curses of bitterness, unforgiveness, generational curses of lack, poverty mindsets. Where did it start? It started with a grandpa who just never trusted in his heart that God was Jehovah Jireh, and he passed it on to his son. And his son passed it on to his son. And his son passed it on to his son. So we've got a whole lineage of family members that have a certain generational bend where we just don't trust God with our money. And don't even ask me to be a generous person because all I have is for me. I got to pay for gas money this week. And where did the anger come from? Why do we see a kid lashing out, screaming, doing terrible things at recess, becoming a bully? It started with generational actions of people who didn't guard their heart. Your heart is not just important for you. It's important for your kids. It's important for your future kids, your future grandkids. Heart check. I want to give you real quickly, I'm I'm going to get into three enemies of your heart tonight. Um, And these three enemies, I think they come for all of our hearts. I don't think they just target one person. I think they target all of us in the room. So let me just get into the first enemy that's after your heart, and that's the enemy of anger. Anger says, you owe me. You wronged me, so you're going to pay. Somebody say, you owe me. Turn to that person next to you and say, you owe me. (laughs) Some of y'all meant that. You're like, you do owe me. (laughs) They owe you an apology. They owe you an ice cream. They owe you a meal tonight. They owe you a coffee. They owe you that parking space they took. They owe you the chair they stole. They owe you. You owe me. You owe me. And, and it flows from offense. John Bevere calls offense the bait of Satan. So I was fishing recently with our kids and I was throwing out our, our fishing. You know, I'm not a great fisherman, but we were fishing and I, I cast it out there and our boys were like, how come the fish aren't biting? I said, because we don't have good bait. And uh, the enemy knows your bait. He knows what kind of bait ticks you off. He knows, and for some of you, it's secondhand offense. It's not even what someone did to you. It's what someone did to your best friend. It's what someone did to your dad. It's what someone did to your daughter. And your daughter forgave them, but you didn't. Your best friend has already moved on, but you haven't. And that secondhand offense, that bitterness, that resentment, I'm ticked off. You owe me. What do I owe you? You owe me this and you owe me that. And you owe my friends this. And you owe my community this. And you owe all of us this. And anger is such a lie. Anger promises to satisfy you and yet it robs you of life. Anger says, if I stay bitter enough, I'm going to get happier with my life. No, no, no. You just become more empoisoned. With that stuff, uh, unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping for someone else to die, right? So let's imagine that this is unforgiveness. You're going down. Ah, I'm going to make you pay for this. Did y'all ever see Princess Bride? Y'all remember that moment where that guy's like, and he just falls over from poison. 
And I was thinking, that's really what bitterness does, unforgiveness. It literally chokes the life out of you. It chokes the life out of you. Out of this heart issue comes every violent, scandalous act. The ultimate act of of anger is murder. We saw it happen in Tulsa, Oklahoma last Wednesday. A man who was angry at a doctor could not control his anger and took out his anger on an entire hospital floor. And you go, well, Paul, I don't know if we should address this in church. Where else are we going to address this? You want CNN to address this? Because they don't have the answers. Well, we just need to let Fox News figure it out. No, it needs to be talked about in the church. I just don't think we should mention what, what happens when we're angry. No, we need to uncover and expose the enemy of anger. It is murder and it is not of God. And some of us in this room, you go, well, I haven't done that. But have you imagined murdering someone? If we could put all your thoughts when you are angry at a person up on the screen, y'all are going, no, don't do that. You don't want to see what I've thought about. But the reality is, Jesus said, if you've thought about it, it's as if you've done it, which makes us all guilty. And you go, well, is there hope for any of us if we've all committed a, a terrible sin with our thoughts and our emotions? This is why we've got to repent. This is why we've got to say, Lord, Come inside my heart and where I have been angry at people and I have thought some violent thoughts. Lord, I want you to renew my mind. God, get a hold of my heart, my emotions. Why? Because if you keep meditating on it, eventually what you think about, you'll do. You've got to deal with what's going on in your heart, in your mind. How did anger get in? Maybe you lost something. Maybe someone took your idea. Maybe someone took your credit. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you didn't know how to handle a certain thing that happened in your life with certain people who made mistakes and anger started festering, started festering, and and you didn't pay attention to it. And now it's become a stronghold in your heart. But God says tonight is the night to remove every stronghold. Tonight, how do I get rid of anger. What is the cure to anger? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Matthew 5, verse 7, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In order for me to overcome anger, in order for me to remove anger from my heart, I've got to start forgiving. Jesus tells us that the prayer we should pray every single day, he says this in all the gospels, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Go ahead and say it with me if you know it. Give us this day our daily bread and for as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Notice that he put the forgiveness part right in the middle. He sandwiched it with praise to God, a request to God for the needs you have in your life, forgiveness. Then a prayer of deliverance from temptation. Then back to praise, back to worship. Thine is the kingdom. He says, I want forgiveness to be at the center of your prayers. As you're asking me for things, I want you to forgive every person who's hurt you. Every person who's stolen from you. And watch what he says. He says, forgive me as I forgive those who've trespassed against me. So in order for me to get rid of anger, I'm saying, Lord, forgive me as I forgive. Fill in the blank. Who has sinned against you? And how much forgiveness do you want? 
Lord, forgive me the way that I have forgiven President Biden. Lord, forgive me the way that I have forgiven the United States of America government. Lord, forgive me the way that I have forgiven how they handle our tax money. Lord, forgive me the way that I have forgiven my ex. Lord, forgive me the way that I forgive the people who hurt me. Lord, forgive me the way that I forgive the person who hurt my family the most. Lord, forgive me. And God goes, really? You want me to forgive you the way that you forgave them? Because the way that you forgave them is probably not the way you want me to forgive you. So I need to go, Lord, have I fully forgiven them? Because as humans, we forgive partially. We're like, I'll forgive, but I am still hoping. We start praying Davidic prayers from Psalms. We're like, Lord, cause them to fall down mountains. Lord, I pray for rocks to fall in front of them. I pray for their car to break down. I pray for, you know, we start praying some dark prayers and God says, you want me to forgive you the way that you forgive them? So if I'm going to deal with anger in my heart, I've got to have radical forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean I'm okay with what they did. Forgiveness doesn't mean I hope that, that whatever they did, they can just keep doing it and it's all going to be okay. No, there's people who've done some terrible things. There, we've all done some things that we shouldn't have done. And then there's people who've done terrible things. And, and God's like, I still love those people. And forgiveness doesn't mean that there's no consequences. Consequences are not from an angry place. Consequences are just what happens when we commit certain actions. But you can still forgive someone. And you can still deal with that mercy in your heart. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. In Matthew 18, 21, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. That's the title of the parable. Notice that the parable is not titled the forgiving master. It's titled the unforgiving servant. The focus is on a guy who has a million dollar debt that he owes his master. His master says, I'm throwing you in jail until you pay every last penny. Well, this servant gets on his knees. He says, oh, please, 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 please. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I, I promise I will do whatever I can to pay it. I just can't afford it. And the master watches him cry. The master sees him. He sees the sincerity in his heart. He hears this man's brokenness and he says, you know what? You can't pay. There's no way that you could even get close to paying the debt you owe me. But I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to pay the debt for you. I'm going to forgive you. And you would, like, that would be an amazing ending of the story if Jesus said, and that's how God loves us. But he wants to go further. He says, God loves you that much. But some of you, you take the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the, the sheer favor of his salvation, and you go find some person who did something wrong to your friend, who did something wrong to you, and they owe you 10 bucks for what they did. Like if we were to really look into what they did and fully investigate and understand it, we go, yeah, it was wrong. It was like 10 bucks. He owes you 10 bucks for that and you grab them by the throat. Jesus says, you find a guy who owes you $10 and you demand his life when you just got spared yours for a much bigger debt that you committed. And Jesus says, now, how do you think the master's gonna treat this guy when he finds out what he did to another person? The story goes that he finds that servant who was unforgiving towards another guy and he says, 
did I hear that you threw a man in prison who owes you 10 bucks and you told him that you would throw his wife and his kids in prison too until he paid you the $10 when you know how much I have forgiven you of so much crud? And then he pulls that unforgiving servant back. And he says, unless you forgive the sins of others, your sins will not be forgiven. How can we expect the mercy of God when we are holding an angry grudge towards other people? Lord, I need mercy, but I am not letting him off the hook. And God goes, you're not letting yourself off the hook either. Because as long as you hold on to unforgiveness, you are literally blocking the blessing of God from coming into your life. It's not hindering them. It's hindering you. It's choking the life out of you. And so Jesus tells Peter, because Peter says, well, how many times do I have to forgive someone who keeps on doing the same stupid thing to me? And Jesus, you know, Peter goes, three, four, three strikes, and then you're out, four, five, maybe seven. I'm going to be really kind here, seven. Jesus says, I tell you, not seven, but 70 times seven. Because as long as you want to keep on receiving mercy, that's how much you've got to keep on giving mercy. And Peter's counting 70 times seven, 70 times seven, 70 times seven, 70 times seven. What is that? Is that 340? 400? 490? He's like, all right, so after 490 times. And I could just imagine Jesus going, it's, it's not about the number. It's about breathing. It's about inhaling the mercy of God and exhaling the mercy of God. How many times do I breathe during the day? I don't count how many times I breathe. I breathe because if I stop breathing, I die. What Jesus was telling Peter, stop counting how many times you had to forgive Paul. Stop counting how many times you had to forgive Ashley. Stop counting how many times you had to forgive Drew. Stop counting how many times you had to forgive John or Daniel or Ty or Jessica or Sarah. Stop counting because as long as you want to keep on living, you need to keep inhaling the mercy of God and exhaling the mercy of God. You need to keep inhaling the forgiveness of God. Lord, every single day, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive me today. Every single day, forgive me today as I forgive others today. Every single day, practice forgiveness. That's the first enemy of the heart is anger. I want to tell you a quick story on that. True story. In Spain, in the um, early 1900s, there's a story told about a father and a son who had become estranged. So this father and this son were not, they weren't getting along. There was a, a wedge between the dad and the boy. The son left home and the father set out to find him. He searched for many months with no success. Finally, in desperation, the father took out a massive newspaper ad on the front page that read, Dear Paco, that was his son's name. Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven, son. I love you, your father. On Saturday, 800 men named Paco showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their father. How many Pacos are waiting for their dad to say all is forgiven? And how many dads in the room tonight 
And how many moms in the room tonight need to hear that over you? All is forgiven. I think for some of us in this room, this might be the biggest enemy that has tried to creep into our heart, anger and unforgiveness. The second enemy I wanna deal with right here is greed. Greed. You don't hear a whole lot of sermons about greed. But greed is not you owe me. Greed says, I owe me. I deserve more. I don't have enough. I don't have what they have. And greedy people have a difficult time seeing other people get blessed. Greedy people, they don't just want what others have. They don't want others to have what they have. A greedy person says, I want the credit. I want the money. I'm I'm not getting enough salary. They're not paying me enough. It's impossible sometimes to see greed in the mirror. Oftentimes we think, I'm not greedy. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. How do you spot greed in your life? Well, here's a couple questions to ask yourself. What do you do when you start losing? What do you do when you start losing? What do you do when you start losing, not just in sports, because most of us in this room, we're not playing sports anymore. What do you do when you start losing at your job? What do you start doing when you, when you lose opportunities that other people get? When you lose certain things in your life? How do you handle loss, demotion? Greedy people have to win at all costs. This is my room. This is my building. This is my department. This is my office. This is my chair. This is my parking space. If I give something up, then I'm losing. Everything becomes personal for greedy people. It's not just my desk. It's I need a bigger desk. It's the size of my office. They didn't give me a big enough office. I want the corner window. It's all of life is somebody owes me. I owe me. I owe me more. Greed is a scarcity mindset. Nothing is ever enough. I'm running out. Gas prices are too high. I'm not going to have an, I can't give in the offering. I can't bless another person. My money is my money. We're in a, a society right now where people are afraid about the future financially. So greed stirs up this scarcity mindset. What if I run out? What if I don't have enough? So I got to keep what I've got and I got to get more and I got to take it at all costs. Greed is an appetite that can never be satisfied. There is no finish line for greed. It drives people past the norms. People start putting themselves above others. We start putting ourselves in front of our family, in front of entire organizations. I'm going to take what's mine. They would rather take the credit than share the credit. What's at the bottom of greed? Fear. At the bottom of greed, if you were to look at a tree that's producing fruit of greed, greed apples, greed oranges, at the, beneath the surface, the root of a greedy tree is fear. Fear. I'm afraid that I won't have enough. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose and lose big. I'm afraid that people will forget me. I'm afraid that people won't show me and share with me the things that I need. I'm afraid that God's not going to meet my needs. I'm afraid that God's not going to take care of me. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, don't be afraid about tomorrow, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. That whole passage in Matthew six about fear has to do with money. This is why he ends Matthew 6 with seek first the kingdom of God and all these things that you're chasing for a bigger house, 
a boat, a nicer car, what he has, what she has, a bigger office, a nicer desk, a better iPhone, an upgraded iPhone, a bigger TV, more channels, more networks on my TV, more stuff, more money, 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 money. Jesus says, if you chase that, it will choke the life out of you. But if you chase the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto you. He says, pagans, non-Christians, they worry every single day about money. It's the number one fear in America. Money, money, I'm afraid. People are more afraid about not having enough money than they are about dying. They would be okay dying with a lot of money. Uh, They would be okay, like just think about that. People are more concerned with having money than they are with dying. So they will do whatever it takes to get money. How do I break greed? How do I uh, uh, eliminate the enemy of greed in my heart? Generosity, radical generosity, intentional generosity. Start giving away money. Start breaking the power of money off your life. Start putting generosity in front of the worry and the fear about tomorrow. When you have a need, sow a seed. Start giving away stuff in your house. Instead of looking at things of where you can make more money, just start looking at things of where you can be a bigger blessing. Go, man, I don't use that coat. I'm going to give that coat to someone in the church who needs a coat. I don't use those tennis shoes, and I got 10 pairs of tennis shoes. I don't. I'm just saying if you do. I'm going to give these tennis shoes. I've seen people who got like 40 pairs of tennis shoes. And I'm like, how do you even wear all those? I don't use this, so I'm going to give it away. Our society, America especially, is so obsessed with money and stuff and materials. And I'm telling you, it literally, some of the most miserable people in the world are the wealthiest. I remember I got invited to play golf at Pebble Beach with John Maxwell, and someone sponsored me and Ashley to go. Pebble Beach is in California, right outside of Carmel, California, which is one of the most beautiful um, areas in, in the United States. And Ash and I were like super honored to go. This was in year 2016. We went there and we, we were on the golf course. There's John Maxwell and all these different leaders that he, you know, invited to come and someone sponsored Ash and I. We were like, can't believe we're here. We're the youngest people here. And, and I, I'm looking at Pe- Pebble Beach. I'm not a golfer. And they gave me a caddy. They gave me, I didn't have like a bag of clubs. So they, had, you know, rented me a bag of clubs. And the caddy introduces himself to me, and he's like, um, he's like, you, you play golf? And I was like, not a whole lot. And he was like, oh, okay. And um, he was like, have you, have you ever, you know, you ever played on a really nice course like this? I was like, nope, never played on a nice course like this. It's like, I've played at Hunter Park, or not, at La Fortune. I played at La Fortune, the par three course. And he's like, La Fortune. I was like, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's like, Southern Hills. I was like, no, not Southern Hills, La Fortune. It's down the street, the par three course, you know, the 18 bucks and play at nighttime, you know. And um, <laughs> he's like, I was a caddy for Arnold Palmer. I was like, the drink? I didn't know that. He's like, no, not the drink, the human, the person. I was like, there's a person named Arnold Palmer. I thought it was lemonade and sweet tea. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, there's this guy was just, he starts cussing. He's like, why did you stick me with this kid? But we had a good time. We're laughing. We're walking down the course. And um, I said, what club should I use here? And he's like, it doesn't matter. He's like, you are not good at golf and nothing I tell you is going to help you at all. And I was like, all right, cool, cool. And I was like, well, let's talk about, you know, the houses over here. I said, whose house is that? He's like, well, that's Charles Schwab's house. Whose house is that? That's Gene Hackman's house. 
Well, whose house is that? That's Clint Eastwood's house. And I said, well, how much did that cost? He said, that one was $55 million. He said, that one over there was $100 million. He said, it's not just how much square footage is in the house. It's where it's located. This area is one of the wealthiest places for people to live. And he said, but can I tell you something? I said, what? He said, these people who own these homes, he said, I caddy for them every week. They are the most miserable men in the world. And I said, no way. I was like, they've got all this stuff. They've got like four pools, tennis courts, a golf course, Carmel, California. And he's like, and they are miserable as H-E double hockey sticks. And pardon my, this is what he said. Don't just edit that out of the online. If you're offended, I'm sorry. Just, it's in the Bible. The word is in the Bible. But Peter cussed too in the Bible. So just give me a break. Uh, (laughs) So he was like, they are miserable. They are so miserable. And all they do is complain all the time. And they never have enough money. They always got to get more money. And I was like, they got more money than, than our whole nation. They got enough money to end poverty together. Like they could literally change the, the, the whole way our world, they could give so much away. They could help people. They could start companies and jobs. And he's like, they're not going to do that. And he said, man, here's the problem is so many people. It's not that they have money. It's that money has them. Money has them. They are slaves to money. And you know, you don't have to be a billionaire to be a slave to money. You can be a college student with hardly any money and be a slave to money. I've seen people who are just as stingy that have hardly have any money as some of these wealthy people. So it's not about how much you have. It's about where your heart's at. How do I break the spirit of greed? It's not by making more money or making less money. So don't, don't make money the problem. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. The love of money, it's what causes men and women to live with such a greedy, a green eye. I mean, just envious. Anytime someone gets blessed with a car, anytime a single parent mom gets blessed, you go, I should have gotten that car. She doesn't do I deserve, I owe my, the church owes me more. I owe me, I need that. When you can't celebrate other people's blessings, other people's promotions, other people's success, that's a greed issue. And really it's a fear issue. And so the way we break it is by generosity, not just generosity with our money, but generosity with our encouragement, generosity with our shout outs to other people. This is something I got to practice on a regular basis, just that I would write more thank you notes to other people, that I would make sure I give more credit away to other people. By the way, every great thing that happens here at this church is because of some amazing team members that make it happen week in, week out. It's not me. It's not, it, it, it's, I have hardly anything to do with it. We have an incredible team of behind the scenes leaders and pastors, people like Marie behind the camera, people like Daniel Com running the sound back there, people like uh, Isaiah back there, people who help set up the curtains. I think about people like Ty and Debbie Barker that are constantly serving uh, behind the scenes with our benevolence ministry, Charmaine, John Darty working with production, people that are helping all ushers and greet. Can we give it up for the amazing dream team that makes it happen here? And then I was thinking about how really when we start wanting more credit and we, we don't know how to give it away, it's because we think that nobody sees us and that God doesn't see us. The Bible says that God sees all things. 
God will reward you for the private things you do for other people, the stuff that nobody else sees. I remember watching a speech by Kevin Durant when he won the MVP award uh, in the NBA back when he used to play for Oklahoma City Thunder before he betrayed us. We forgive him. We're removing anger from our hearts. But when Kevin Durant was here, um, he gave a speech and he was like, you know, I wouldn't be here today without my mama. And he starts celebrating his mama. And he said, I wouldn't be here today without Russ Westbrook. We forgive him too. I wouldn't be here today without Harden. You know, he starts giving all these shout outs. But then he says, I want to mention a name that you probably don't know. And he says this guy's name and people are like, who's that? And it was one of the guys on the team that hardly ever got playing time. He was a guy that sat on the bench of the Thunder, and he rarely ever got put into the game, so people didn't know his name. But Kevin said, I want to just take some time on this person's name. He said, there were nights where I felt like a loser, nights where I played terrible, nights where ESPN was talking bad about my game, how I just missed it, how I lost it, how I just wasn't doing good, that I was struggling. And this guy would leave notes in my locker of encouragement. This guy would lift me up when other people, and he just started celebrating this guy. And the whole, I mean, just the place erupted with applause for this, this guy whose name they didn't know. No one knew his name. In fact, I don't even remember his name as I'm telling the story. But I remember what he did. He gave the credit away. And I think there's something powerful when we just start giving, being generous, giving stuff away. And here's the last point right here. The last enemy that comes for us is jealousy. I could probably go through 10 more enemies, but tonight, just those three. Jealousy. Jealousy says, God owes me. God owes me. What happened to me? Why didn't I get what other people got? Why did I, why did I not get blessed with the same family as them? Why did I get these jeans and they got those jeans? I'm not talking about jeans. I'm talking about jeans. Y'all know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about G-E-N-E-S, genes. Um, we get frustrated and we get jealous when we see other people thriving, when we see other people's relationships healthy and whole. Jealousy has a hard time not just celebrating other people, but jealousy keeps us trapped on the inside. I want the band to come up. Jealousy keeps us trapped on the inside with just a constant murmuring and complaining and anger. And this is really what tripped the Israelites up. They moved from a place of, of you know, uh, fear to a place of jealousy before King Saul was chosen. They started looking at other nations and they said, why can't we be like them? Why do we have to, why can't we have a king? Be careful when you start comparing yourself to other people, wanting what other people have, because this is what tripped the Israelites up. Their jealousy led them to, to adopt a model that later on actually hurt them worse. When they didn't have a king, they were led by judges and leaders like Joshua and Moses and you know, different ones, Deborah, who led them. When there was no king, they just listened to the voice of God. They followed God's voice. But as soon as they got a king, all things in their nation started shifting and changing. There was a whole lot more um, man focus and pride and selfishness and all kinds of things that come with kings. And the jealousy wasn't just there. Jealousy got inside of King Saul. He started getting jealous of David. 
David started getting more attention. His jealousy drove him to a mad place where he was angry. He wanted David's life. He wanted David's success. He wanted David's applause. And he forgot his purpose. Jealousy causes us to forget, why am I here? What has God called me to do? What lane has God called me to run in? One thing I'm so thankful for about a lot of our leaders who serve here at Victory on staff is you don't find jealousy amongst these leaders. They've, they've celebrated others and they've owned the lane and the role that God's put them in. And they just do a great job walking that out, living that out. Can we give all the pastors on staff a big hand, the leaders that work here? I'm so thankful. When we find ourselves, how do you spot jealousy in your own heart? How do I spot jealousy in my own heart? When I find myself secretly celebrating the failure of somebody else, that's jealousy. When I'm kind of happy that someone failed, like finally, they're not as perfect as we all thought they were. See, I told you it was gonna happen. There's something in us that's, that's evil when we don't break with compassion for those who fall. When we, when we get to a place where we're actually happy in someone's failure or we kind of go, did you hear about that? And we want to gossip about it. That's, that's, that's a deep, dark issue of the soul. It's just as ugly in God's eyes as the actual sin of whatever it is that we're celebrating that they, they did or that we're happy to gossip about. Um, if we find ourselves avoiding friendships with people who are high achievers or successful, I don't want to be around them. They're just too successful. <laughs> it becomes a lid in our lives because of jealousy. This happened to me uh, years ago, and I'll just be honest, it was another pastor. And I was like, he's so awesome. I just can't be close friends with him. He's just so amazing. And uh, <laughs> he picked up on it. He's like, bro, we were like friends. And then this happened. And I was like, you're right. I was like, it was jealousy. And he's like, man, thanks for being honest. I said, man, I am sorry. I repented to God, but I want to repent to you as my friend. And, um, and now we're really good friends. We get along really well together and, and do ministry together. In fact, I'll just tell you it is Mike Todd. Pastor, y'all are like, we all knew it was Mike Todd. <laughs> y'all are like, why is he not saying his name? But Mike and I, we were laughing about this last week. We were on the news together and we were praying for the city. And I was like, dude, our friendship has come a long way. Because me and him used to make music together before we were pastors. When I was 19, I went to his mom's house and he had a recording studio in his mom's house when, before either of us were married. Uh, and he, we would make music together. He'd play piano, I'd sing songs, he would help me record music. And, and then when he just blew up, his ministry just took off. And I was I felt like Woody off Toy Story and he was Buzz Lightyear. Y'all ever seen Toy Story? Y'all know Woody and Buzz Lightyear? And I was like, he can't fly. You know, he's just falling with style. And, uh, and I, was, I was so jealous. And I, like, I opened it up. I admitted to it. I was like, bro, I'm sorry. That was so stupid of me to be jealous. Like, I should have celebrated you. And he laughed and he cried. He's like, I felt that. He's like, I knew that. And I was like, well, you don't have to rub it in. But he's like, I knew you were insecure about it. I was like, okay, all right. But it was good because now we're good friends. We can celebrate each other honestly, sincerely. Um, same thing with Craig Rochelle. I used to be kind of jealous how Craig Rochelle's ministry had just taken off and it was amazing and life churches everywhere. And I thought I could never be friends with him because he's just a high achiever. Well, now 
Pastor Craig and I text almost every week. In fact, he was texting me today asking, I forgot to tell you, Ashley, he wants to have dinner with us, him and his wife. But um, it, now we're like really good friends. And uh, I'm just telling her from the stage. She's like, okay. But I had to break the spirit of jealousy off my heart. Anyone you look at where you go, I just don't know. I just, I'm jealous. Of, like, stop. It's hurting you. It was hurting me. And now I'm free of that. I can truly say I am free of jealousy. There's not a person in my life that I am jealous of. I, I genuinely mean that. I used to be jealous. And I, when I say used to be, I'm not talking 20 years ago. I'm like two years ago, three years ago. But something broke. Something shifted. It was right before the pandemic where God said, you need to stop. You need to repent. There's a lot of jealous pastors out there. Don't be one of them. Just learn to celebrate all the pastors and leaders. Learn to, to be a good friend to them in whatever season they're in. And I'm thinking God wants to do that in our lives tonight. So how do we break that? We just start encouraging and celebrating other people. We just start uh, looking for ways to make those people feel loved. And privately in our hearts, we, we speak good words about other people, especially when they're going through hard times. We don't ever add to the gossip, the slander, the chatter. That just proves that you, you carried a spirit of jealousy. So just break that. If you find yourself in a circle talking bad about a friend, you just walk away and just say, I'm not going to join into this. I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to have that person's heart. They're back. I'm praying for them. And then you just say, Lord, guard my heart. Guard my heart. Okay. Let me just end with this. Four disciplines that will help us to have a healthy heart. Number one, the discipline of reflection. That's what we were doing tonight. We were reflecting on things in our hearts that possibly have gotten in, enemies of the heart. When I was in college, there was a floor that I was on. It was like a fraternity, a group of guys. We all lived on this floor together at ORU. And one week I walked down the hall and I smelled something terrible. I was like, something really bad is in this hallway. And all the guys started smelling. They were like, man, something really bad. And a week went by. We couldn't figure out. We cleaned the bathroom. We mopped the floors. We sprayed cologne up and down that floor. And it just stunk. We could not get rid of the stink until finally someone pulled back one of the ceiling tiles that was in the middle of our floor where we all lived. You know, doors on both sides, long floor. And they opened the ceiling tile and there was a dead squirrel that had just been rotting with flies. It was nasty, um, just stinking up our whole floor. Someone had stuck it in there as a prank to make our floor stink. And this is what the enemy does. He sneaks in and he sticks stuff in there and then he slides the ceiling tile hoping that you won't find it and he hides it somewhere. So what we do, the discipline of reflection helps us to go, man, there's some things that the Holy Spirit needs to pull out of my heart. Reflecting on relationships, reflecting on attitudes, reflecting on your reactions this week. Some of us, we live so busy that we don't take time to just stop and go, I can't believe I did that. Some of us don't take time to reflect on what we did, what we said, how we handled a meeting, how we reacted to a person. And reflection helps me to change my behavior. Because if I can go, if Ashley goes, how was your day today? I just can't even remember any of it. Let's just eat, you know. But if she goes, I want you to reflect on your day. Tell me the highs and the lows. I start going through it. Ah, oh, yeah, there was this one conversation where I, I reacted this way. And as I'm reflecting on it, it goes, I need to call that person and apologize. I didn't mean to come across like that. I, Lord, tomorrow, help me to be 
more fruitful in the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The discipline number two, the discipline of rest. How do I get a healthy heart? It's not just reflection, it's rest. God has built rest into our very physiology. God rested after his work. He set the Sabbath as a model example for us. When I am not rested, I am in a vulnerable place in my heart. Sin is crouching at the door of unrested leaders. Unrested husbands, wives, sons, daughters, I don't care what season of life you're in, you need rest. All of us do, the young and the old. We need rest. One of the quickest ways to lose perspectives is to rob ourselves of God-given rest. When we practice the discipline of rest, it requires a, um, a pause in our body, a pause in our thinking, a pause. It requires deliberate choices. Deciding to rest one day in seven is choosing to take the allotted time off that's been given to you. There are more vacation hours around the United States of America that have not been used than any other nation in the world. We pride ourselves in being the, the most busy, working, working, working society, and we've got to take time to rest. When we don't rest, we end up burning out. So I, I believe it, it's, it's like fasting for your body from work, just saying, you know what, I'm going to take some time to just be still, go outside, go for a walk, watch a movie, relax, whatever you need to do for that day of rest. Number three, the discipline of recreation. We need this. I'm almost done. There's a big difference between amusement and rest, recreation. Amusement leaves us tired, more tired sometimes than when we started. If you've ever taken a, a trip to Disney World and, and you've come back from Disney World and you're like, I need a vacation from going to Disney World with my family. Y'all ever feel that before where you've gone somewhere and you're like, that was not restful. 15 of us in the room. Um, but most of us in this room have done something where we go, that was supposed to be restful and it wasn't. It's because it was all about amusement. Recreation actually involves activity, but it gives us opportunity to express our creativity. For some, it might involve painting, writing, playing a musical instrument. For me, I love sitting down at the piano. It's restful. It doesn't feel like work. I took some time to do that today where I just played on the piano and just sang to the Lord, and I enjoyed it. It was refreshing for my soul. It was restful. It was recreation. These activities don't have to be urgent, but they need to be important. And here's the fourth and last one, the discipline of relationships. Arguably, this is the most important discipline. You and I were made to live in relationship to others. In fact, the very foundation of reality is relational. Before the world was created, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived together in perfect love and unity. God had a community at the very beginning. But in a world of social media and fake connections, we must be intentional about building authentic relationships, real community. This means making time. First Wednesdays, sitting down at the table, eating dinner with a group of, of family members or church family members, quality time that we look at each other, we talk to each other, we ask, how was your day? How are you doing? How's your heart? All right, would you stand your feet all over this place? Do y'all receive that message? Come on. <laughs> I like that. Well, let's close our eyes, bow our heads. If you're here right now and you just need to get your soul at peace. You need to get your heart rested.
You need to get your heart free of enemies like jealousy, greed, anger. Maybe there's some things here tonight that you're just thinking about, you're contemplating, you're going, man, I didn't realize that was sitting in there. We're already done with springtime, it's summertime, but I do think that spring is the best time. They call it spring cleaning, where people clean things up, getting ready for summer, cleaning out the garage, cleaning out certain closets, cleaning out certain parts of the house. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here tonight and you just say, man, there's some things that need cleaning in my soul, in my heart. There's thoughts, feelings, emotions. There's attitudes of the heart that just, if I'm honest, they're just not good. I just need to lay them at the altar. Maybe here tonight, it's not anger, it's not greed, it's not jealousy. It's just that you have not been resting. You've not been practicing rest and recreation. Maybe you've just gotten in the habit of being so busy and so focused on work that work has become like an idol. It's, it's just consumed you. Fear has consumed you about running out of money, running out of, 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 of uh, enough. And with heads bowed and eyes closed here tonight, if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand. If the Holy Spirit's asking you to raise your hand right now, don't miss it. God's wanting to do something fresh in your soul tonight. He's wanting to renew you, revive you, replenish you. If you raised your hand or you wanted to, would you leave your seat? Come and meet me at this altar. And maybe you're here tonight and you say, man, I just need to get right with God. Come and meet me at this altar. Come on down right now. Just take a step. Take a step. And as you come down to the altar, just feel free to get on your knees before God tonight. And allow him to do surgery on your soul, surgery on your heart. He wants to come in and he just wants to start working on issues, working on things that need to be dealt with. Maybe it, like I said, maybe it is anger. Maybe it is fear. Maybe it is um, jealousy of something or someone maybe it is just lack of rest and and i'm going to ask some of our just amazing altar counselors to come and stand behind beside each person we're just going to take a few minutes before we dismiss we're going to worship and just take that moment to whisper to god what you are personally laying at the altar tonight what you're asking god to do in your life let's go ahead let's just worship
Say this with me, Jesus, be Lord of my heart. Have your way in my mind, in my heart. Remove anything that needs to be removed. Help me, Lord, to see it, to be aware of what needs to change. walk in humility, to keep on changing, to let the Holy Spirit keep on working in my life. I repent of doing things my way. I want your way. I'm all yours, God. I receive your mercy. I receive your love. I thank you that you are for me not against me. You are with me. You've not abandoned me. You're my provider. You're my shepherd. So I shall not want. You're a good God. And I trust in you. And I lean not to my own understanding. But I guard my heart. And I look to you. In Jesus name. Amen and amen.